Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. What is cultural responsiveness and how can schools and teachers integrate it into practice? How do we weave cultural responsiveness strategies into lesson planning, grouping, and assessment? What role does professional development play in ensuring educators are equipped with culturally sensitive strategies? We discuss these questions and much more with Sarah Said. Sarah has 15 years of experience working with English learners in the Chicagoland area from all parts of the world as a teacher, building administrator, and district-level director of English learner bilingual programs. Sarah sits in the Illinois Advisory Council on Bilingual Education, where she's about to complete the first year of her three-year term. She is a regular blogger for ELL Confianza, and her work has appeared in Education Week, English Learner Portal, and Maui Learn. Let's get started. So welcome, Sarah. Could you start by giving us a brief overview of what you think cultural responsiveness looks like in schools? I think it's the ability to create an environment that's based on what you know about the student's cultural background. So it's kind of like, okay, you take the time to get to know your students and you're getting to know them linguistically, you're getting to know them socially, and you then you take, you take your school and your classroom and you cater your school and you cater your instruction to those students based on how, how they will benefit from it. Got it. So, you know, I was a teacher for a long time, um, and the, the teacher in me immediately recognizes the challenge of incorporating cultural responsiveness, um, but I also definitely recognize the benefits. But just to sort of play devil's advocate here, if I'm a math teacher uh, with a class of 28 kids, 12 of whom are ELLs, who come from five different countries, maybe with varying um, degrees of language ability, what do I do? What are some of the initial reactions you hear from teachers when it comes to implementing cultural responsiveness strategies? One of the things I've heard, you know, there's always this um, discrepancy when you're the teacher of English learners that you have to know all of the languages. So when I first started my career, there were teachers who thought I knew like 10 different languages and I didn't. It was just a matter of how I catered my instruction to those students. So one of the things that I had to learn how to do is use native language without knowing the native language. So there are resources and tools that, sh that can help you do that. And sometimes you can, for example, there's a tool called Twinkle where you can buy a subscription. You can then use the students um, native, you could find the students native language and the content that you um, are teaching and then use those resources in your classroom based on what you're doing that day. So, you know, I've also used translator pens, Google translate, very simple um, with older kids that, you know, if you're in a school where kids could actually bring their phones and use their phones, 
I've seen kids use Google Voice where they've spoken into the phone and, you know, they were able to have a back and forth with their instructor. I've seen schools use iPads and, and mics where they mic up the teacher and then the kids have iPads and it's translating for the kids. So there's a lot of, with the technology we have um, nowadays with the resources we have. It, I think it's actually easier than when I first started. We don't want to know how many years ago teaching um, because we didn't have the Google Voice, the iPads. We, you had one computer in your whole classroom, and if you were lucky, an LCD projector, and you used images to show students um, what you were talking about. But now, you know, you have these resources. You have these, um, these, these innovative ideas. What you can also do is really like, okay, so you have this group of students, and their culture is different. You, you may not know much about them. That's where you try to create activities that deal with your content area to help you learn more about those students that are more social emotional based. One thing I can tell you is that those activities aren't just gonna work for your English learners, they're gonna work for everyone in your classroom. So what I would recommend is, you know, working with students in a fun way to create a learner profile, maybe having them create a mock Twitter page or a Facebook page about them, or, you know, having them, you know, create trading cards about their learning styles to help you get to learn more. And then that's where you can take your instruction and, and use that information to cater your instruction. It helps you cater groupings. It helps you cater to um, maybe the way that your students assets and how you're going to differentiate for those students. Um, a lot of times in these situations, we look at the language as a deficiency. Oh no, they speak another language. I'm not going to be able to teach them. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. But really, we need to look at that and other skills that those students have as an asset. And sometimes what happens is the language blurs everything. And we don't realize that our students, maybe they don't have the English language yet, keyword yet, but they have the logic to be able to answer those um, mathematical equations. Um, math is more language-based now, so that's where you really need to think about how you're going to break down those statements for students and able to understand and communicate with them. Yeah, that's great. I take a, a, a few things out of your answer there. Um, one is, you know, you talk a little bit about the technology, but before that you start to talk, I think, more about kind of a mindset. Um, the idea that you can sort of, I think you said, speak the native language without speaking the native language, take some risks, understand, have the students understand that you're, you can be vulnerable as well, and you're going to take some risks so that they take risks. And I certainly take a lot out of what you said about the technology. I think um, I won't date myself either, but I will say that, I, well, I guess I will. I was a Spanish teacher for 17 years, um, and the amount of tools that I found you know, myself surrounded with later in my career um, was just astronomical compared to when I started. But then going back to that mindset piece, it's we have to be of the mindset at a school where, okay, these tools are okay to use, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other podcast oh, episode. <laughs> So I want to I want to come back to that that mindset piece because I, I think that that's something that I've I've seen you or, or I've I've, um, I've read a lot uh, from you about that mindset. You talk a lot about it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like what kind of mindset, um, in addition to just being able to take some risks, does a teacher really need to be able to really embrace this idea of cultural responsiveness? They need to understand that their students will grow. They need to be able to plant those seeds. Um, I can't stress 
how many times I've seen a teacher just give up because, you know, I, I've heard them say, well, they don't have the skills. They don't have the skills. That's where we have to put the word yet in the statement. They don't have the skills yet, but let's work with the kids on setting goals so that they can master those concepts and we can go chunk by chunk at a time. Um, a lot of times we lose our patience. I, I've, I, I've lost mine before. Um, we lose them plenty. We lose them plenty of times. We're just human. And that's where we have to remember to slow down in order to move quickly so that our students um, eventually will be able to grasp the meaning of, of what we're talking about. Again, growth is key. If you're not embracing that your students will grow, then I mean, this isn't this isn't for you. Yeah. And I love that. word. I love that just word yet. Just simple. They don't they don't have it yet. Um, and I think, you know, I think that 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 concept is growing on people as we move away from teachers just being kind of masters of content to being um, more coaches and more teachers thinking about the idea that we are all teachers of language. But still, you know, we definitely have this. Um, we, I think you and I and, and many of us in, you know, in this area consider this whole idea of super diversity, this this term that I've seen a lot lately as an asset Um you know, and that, and that it's something that we can utilize in our classes. And it is something that, um, that teachers are beginning to recognize that they need more training in. There was a survey about New York City teachers that came out recently that said the majority of teachers feel it, it's important to engage in topics of race, ethnicity, and other identities, but they report a lack of training um, in, to, to support that work, which anecdotally, I'm not at all surprised by that there's not enough PD in this. But what, you know, and I know you do a lot of work with your PLN and, and there's a lot of um, uh, virtual PD out there, but what do you, what is PD, professional development for cultural responsiveness, um, look like? You know, it's really working with teachers on strategies. There's a lot of times where I, I've gone to PD on cultural responsiveness and the presenter is telling me the what, the what, okay, here are the students. This is who this is who you're working with, and that's it. I know who my students are. I, I know the communities I work with. I, I've 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 learned about that. But how how can I reach them? And I think that that's where, you know, PD on cultural responsiveness needs. That's the direction it needs to move into. Um, so I think it's important to first of all, when you do this type of PD, respect teachers. Um, I always like to do a survey beforehand for teachers to test their own cultural responsiveness because when they do that, then um, they kind of get an understanding of what their own needs are. Okay, it's kind of like you know, their own self-assessment. I never ask teachers to communicate what is in that self-assessment because that's private and that's personal and I respect that. Um, and that's where, again, you, you move into um, the PD that is more strategic incorporating PSYOP strategies. Uh, for people who don't know what PSYOP means, it's Sheltered Instruction Observation Protocol, and teaching teachers how to use those strategies like language and content objectives um, support cultural responsiveness. Because at the end of the day, you know, we really want our students to be able to achieve those content and language goals. And how to get there is important as well. And finding tools to help teachers build relationships, different 
ideas, different projects, depending on the content area, as well as different tools for teachers to be able to utilize for classroom interaction and um, cooperative learning is part of cultural responsiveness as well. I would never call cultural responsive teaching a strategy. I would call it a philosophy with an umbrella that has an umbrella of strategies. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it makes even more sense with what you said about, and I love it that you said, you know, I, I have the teachers, you have the teachers start off with a survey to assess themselves. It actually reminded me of, we um, had an episode that came out with Stephanie Cuevas from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It was on family and community engagement, but she talked about the importance of teachers recognizing that they all carry with them their own sort of set of beliefs that, you know, and, and, and just ideas that they have based on their own experience. And she quoted a professor from Harvard whose name is Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot who calls these ghosts. And once you can recognize what your ghosts are, you can sort of deal with them and then be in a better position to, to, to be empathetic uh, toward the students that you, that you serve. I also love it that you mentioned sort of a, you know, the, the idea of PSYOP and some, some hands-on um, uh, strategies that are out there. But yeah, the idea that this is a philosophy and the philosophy is an umbrella under which the strategies live definitely makes sense to me. So that being said, let's let's zoom in a little. So um, let's say that I'm a teacher. I, I have a really diverse group of students. I'm beginning the school year. I'm, I'm starting to plan my instruction. Um, and one of the first things that I'm thinking about as a teacher from my training is I have to start building background and I have to start connecting prior knowledge. And I'm thinking, boy, that's even more important with my students who might be English language learners. So how do I incorporate cultural responsiveness into those two things, into building background and connecting to prior knowledge? You know, you really need to gauge students on what they know. And that's difficult to do if you haven't built the relationship with the student. So really trying to have those deep conversations and finding to trying to find tools that help you do that. Years ago, um, I worked in school where I was trained in flipping strategies. And um, it's flipping strategies um, are create were created by a guy named Flip Flippin. And one of the professional developments, it was a, a five day long PD that we went through, was something called capturing kids' hearts, where you learn a lot about um, social contracts. And um, one of my colleagues and friends across the country, uh, Carol Salva. She utilizes social contracts a lot with her kids, and I, I'm sure she, she can talk as much about it as I can. But having those social contracts and also part of um, flipping training is good things. Okay, so the good things really give you an idea of who students are. So one of the things I learned through this training is to try to open up every class period with good things. And, you know, I would start the, start the period off. Okay, guys, what are your good things today? And it became a culture. Um, you know, you, you don't want to overdo it because some kids would want to go through good things the whole entire period. Um, you know, my top middle school, especially middle school. But asking two or three kids what their good things were really gives you an idea of where they come from, what they know daily on a daily basis. And you strike that conversation. And that helps you really gauge that, that, that knowledge so that you can work on in your instruction, instruction, building that background knowledge. It's great because it's so simple and it also sort of establishes a routine that I think um, is necessary for any class. 
And going back to what you said before, I, I forgot to to bring this out of one of your responses was the idea that a lot of these strategies are good for everyone, right? Not just English language learners, routines, um, making sure that we're uh, grouping students appropriately, making sure that we're eliciting the right kinds of responses. Those are all good strategies for everyone. So that it, it's it's not just this idea that, oh, what am I doing for these students? It's what am I doing for everybody and how am I using these students as assets? And I mean, what's, what's great about, um, what's great about doing that with, you know, your EL students, again, you're getting to know everyone and you're building community. When I taught English learners in a, in a sheltered environment, I, I was wondering what I, I was doing wrong. My students, you know, there were days where I felt like my students were all over the place and I didn't know why. And I realized it was because my classroom was their comfort zone. Because in their other classes, they didn't, they didn't talk at all. So when you're, you're doing things like good things and you're building that community, you're, you're giving everyone in the room the mechanism to talk. And that's important because when kids are able to continue, common sense says, when kids are able to continue talking and using a language, they're going to be able to build that language as well. So not only are you helping yourself and learning more about your students and your, your, your classroom and building that climate and environment, you're helping your students also build their oral language capacity. And when they build their oral language capacity, they can also build their um, written language as well as their reading comprehension. Absolutely. Okay, so we've covered the building background and connecting prior knowledge. I think you gave us some, some nice strategies there and, and uh, actionable things that teachers can do. But now I'm going into this next piece that really like makes me nervous as a teacher. And that is I am going to do some activities where I have to put students in groups. I want them to collaborate and learn from one another. Um, but I know that I have students who come from different cultures and some sort of ways of communication, maybe not work for from one culture to the other. And I don't know everything about everything. I'm a new teacher. I have never been trained in this. So how do I use culture responsiveness strategies to promote successful interaction and collaboration in groups? You know, one of the things I, the myths that I heard when I first started teaching was, oh, take your kids who are really struggling and pair them up with the kids who um, really are at the top of the class. I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. That's that they, They'll all learn from each other. It's easy. Um, there's more to it than that. And I think that when you take some of your students who are still beginning to learn the language and you pair them up with somebody who is a beginner but has had more experience with the language, you're going to get a more fruitful conversation between the two of them and more cooperation between the two of them. Then when you get a kid who is at the top, you know, at the top of their, you know, capacity for language and then you you have another student who is a newcomer and you put them together, what happens is the newcomer, they kind of tune out and the other student will continue to work on the work on their own. And you, you don't want that to happen either. Um, also, it's important, I, I talked about this earlier, to have a social contract or some type of agreement within the classroom so that students understand that, you know, this is a place where it's a safe space, it's a place where everyone can work together and not feel not feel isolated and also not feel antagonized because of who they are. So I think that's important to establish in the beginning, um, going back to that conversation we just had about um, flip flipping and capturing kids' hearts. 
that's really important to go through at the beginning. So that way you can really um, establish that culture. When the culture is established, that's where grouping kids is going to be easier for you. Yeah, because you've you've established that social contract. I think we'll we'll um we'll link some of those resources in the notes so that people can see them. Again, I think that's a whole other episode talking about social contracts, and I'm I'm thinking I'd like to go down that road and talk about them, but I think we'll we'll <laughs> leave those in the show notes so people can look at them. That's a whole complex other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here here's a here's kind of a logistical question. You, you know you. You talked about how there is this myth, and I've certainly uh, been been a uh, victim to um, trying to put students who I consider sort of really weak with students who are really strong, and, and it works sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't. But with English language learners, I mean, what do you, what are you typically relying on to make these groups? Is it all data from um, from from ELP testing, from access scores, or are you looking at anecdotal information? Where are you getting that information from to put those students together? It's a combination of both. Um, so in Illinois, we are a WIDA state and we have our access data that we utilize to help us in our district kind of, you know, think about groupings from when we're pushing into classrooms and when we're pulling students out of classrooms as well. And also in a larger setting, then thinking about how you group the students with that, you know, that, that English learner, um, assessment data, like I said, I wouldn't put a level one and a level five together. I would put a level one and a level two together when I'm grouping them and help and then work with them to hit what we call the WIDA, the WIDA can do's together as, as they are, as they are working and making the kids aware of what we want to be able to do within those groups. Um, I also do use anecdotal data lately. Uh, WIDA testing has been mostly online and, you know, sometimes with the online testing, particularly the speaking testing, the scores may not be as high as um, we anticipated because the students are speaking into a microphone and some students are shy. So it's important to also look at your own classroom observations. Uh, my district is also an NWEA map district. So it's important to also look at that map data as well and have that full picture of you know, who your students are and their, their strengths and their weaknesses as well. Great. I'm glad you put your finger on that. Um, the, the, the access testing, and I'm sure that's the case with other tests as well. You know, we saw that here when I was working with partners quite a bit, that the speaking was lower. Um, and as a, as a former AP Spanish language and culture teacher, I know for a fact that when students go and try to speak into a microphone to record their voices, it's just not as natural as it could be. So I think that's why it's even more important to sort of use that formative or anecdotal data that you have from the day to day in a classroom. So I'm glad um, I'm glad you mentioned that. So speaking of assessments, so now I'm, you know, I'm I've I've figured out this grouping to an extent. Although as a teacher, I'm always learning, but I have some ideas. Um, I I have an idea of um, how I'm going to build background knowledge at the beginning of the year. I've figured out social contracts. I've created a community in my class, but now I need to assess. Maybe it's a formative assessment. Maybe it's a summative assessment at the end of a quarter or a semester or a year. How, how can I incorporate this idea of cultural responsiveness into my assessments, whether they be formative or summative? You know, it assessments vary. And I think that's something my team and I actually explored this year when we were undergoing a, a PSYOP book study and thinking about the different ways 
we assess our students, right? Um, long ago, a colleague of mine used to say that your your for your you know your formative assessment is kind of like tasting the soup, right? And your summative, you're serving it, okay? So you know you want to have as many informal formative assessments as you can. And one of the it's so simple. One of the strategies that we learned through our PSYOP training was a strategy called magic buttons, where you have these, these buttons that we tape them to the desks and they're very simple. You ask the kids to look at their buttons and you, you know, you kind of go over the information that you would just, you know, taught them the content you would just taught them and you say, okay, tell me, do you think, are you thinking or you got it? And the kids kind of move their hands on the buttons and they can do that quietly without, you know, being the center of attention and you can look around the room and see who really does have the skill and understands what you've just said and who's really thinking about it. Um, so even games like so old school, but like white whiteboard games where you, you know, you play a little Jeopardy on the whiteboard that also helps you gauge your population to understand what they've really learned and what you really need to um, go back and reteach. Also, in terms of summative assessments, yes, you know, you have your paper pencil test, but sometimes having like a applicable um, project and a problem that students have to solve and have to kind of work together to solve really, one, helps them build their language, but two, helps you kind of really learn if they've applied the, inf if they are able to apply the information or not. And also sometimes students get nervous on a paper pet or a paper pencil test. And, you know, not all of our, our, our kiddos um, have reached that proficiency of writing where they feel confident to write on a piece of paper. So even having that, you know, project that they put together, that visual that they put together, or the situation they have to be able to resolve with the content you've, you've given them, whether they can articulate that orally, you know, that would be better probably for some kids, um, or being able to use a visual to articulate that is so important in thinking about, you know, assessing our learners for the content we've taught them in a way that um, is appropriate for their language capacity. Yeah, so a lot of what you're talking about is just differentiating, which, you know, all educators have heard about. And, and the idea, I think, of magic buttons and those whiteboards is just a way of making making learning and thinking visible, which I think is extremely important as well. And then another theme that that could be another episode, and in fact will be, we're going to speak with somebody about uh, project-based learning and how project-based learning can help um, with with English language learners in very specific ways. Um, but again, like all the things that you're discussing, and like not to belabor this point, but this is good practice for everyone. It's just good teaching. It's just good teaching. <laughs> it's just good teaching. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and so you know, so so a lot of the conversations that I have, almost every single conversation that I have on this podcast or just informally with others um, comes back to the idea that good ELL instruction is good instruction for all. And I think that's definitely the case um, here. But I'd love to hear from you um, an example of how this idea of cultural responsiveness has helped all students or even even like a school community. Like, do you have a concrete example either in your own experience, in your own classroom or in a colleagues that, that could really tell the story of how this can help everybody? Thinking about ways to really bring everyone together and build community within the classroom, but also within the school is important. Um, years ago, you know, we, we had a problem <laughs> that we were facing in a Chicago public school I was working in. And it was, 
you know, really thinking about our literacy. We, we, we felt like our kids weren't reading enough. We, we were trying to really boost their engagement with, with text. And we were back and forth as an English department. And we were really thinking about, you know, what, what could we do to really help our learners? And we felt like, you know, our, our kids would be stronger readers if, you know, there was assurance that they read more at home, right? You know, that's, you know, because you, you keep doing it, you're, you're going to get better at it. That was, you know, our philosophy. So one of the things we came up with this idea of celebrating literacy with our families and with our school community and with our outside community. And that was this project called One Book, One School, One Community, or as we called it in Spanish, Un Libro, un, Una Escuela, Un Comunidad. And we, one year we picked the book, The House on Mango Street, and we all read the book. Um, we got copies for the students to take home and read with their families. We were reading it and um, our community members were reading it as well. So we did a series of three events. One was an event where our middle there was a middle school. Our middle school kids were reading books, picture books that was based on the theme of the house on Mango Street. And their brothers and sisters also did activities. So we were gauging this literacy with everyone. And we were also learning about culture. We were a predominantly Hispanic community. So we were celebrating the Latino culture as well. And then in the second, the second phase of this project, we had our community leaders. So our alderman came out, our, one of our police officers came out, our principal was there, our CEO was there. It was a charter school, our CEO was there. And they read, we had a bilingual reading of the house on Mango Street. So one person would read a chapter in English another person would read a chapter in Spanish and we would also kind of detail what was happening in the book. So everyone had that idea of what, what the storyline was and whether you were reading in English or in Spanish, you were reading and we were, you know, celebrating diversity. We were celebrating the, the, the native language, but we had something for everyone. And then our third night was what you would call a kermes, which is like a kind of like a festival type thing where, our choir sang songs that related to the book. We had little tables with little activities that related to the book and food. And we also had, um, you know, little plays happening as well. Um, dancing related to the book happening. You, you name it, it was happening. And we also had our own art gallery with paintings that our students made that represented the house on Mango Street. So if that gives you an idea, that's a way to bring everyone together, not just your ELL students, not just students of one culture, but your entire school community together. Absolutely. And that just brings me back to, you know, the, the episodes we did on family and community engagement and speaking with people about how essential it is with, with all students, really, again, to, to bring community and bring families in um, so that people understand not just the student as, um, you know, another student in the class who's a learner, but the student as an individual, um, where they come from, who their families are, how they interact with the community. And there's just so much that we can learn from them, which I think is, is what's surprising to people, right? Like we often think of, for example, refugee communities, these people who are coming in, what, what can we do to help them? Which is great and wonderful. And, and it's good to be that way. But when we go to help, we realize, wow, like I'm learning so much from these people. And that's really, I feel like when the tides turn and we can really completely have a, have an appreciation for different cultures on a totally different level. Yes. And I think that people see family engagement as like a side thing. It's not, it, it's, it has to be part of our 
everyday doings as teachers, um, to find ways to constantly be in touch with parents. The current team that I work with is very active on Seesaw. We have a few, if you've looked at my Twitter feed, we've had, we've had a few Seesaw ambassadors on our team. But using that Seesaw tool, which is digital portfolio, it's a nice way of, again, assessing your students in a non-threatening you know, way. You're, you're, you're taking data, you're taking, you know, mo most of it is qualitative and you're collecting it. And then you're also having that communication piece with the parents where the parents can really get engaged with the classroom. And, you know, it's all pictures. So, you know, they don't even have to know how to read in English in order to communicate with their child's teachers. They just know how to, you know, they, the teachers say a lot of our parents just press the like button and, you know, they, our teachers feel great when they see the parents um, selecting the, the like button because they know that there's that, you know, back and forth communication. It's just not one way unilateral communication anymore. Yeah, it's a great tool. Um, I, my kindergartner, uh, teacher has it and it's a, it's something that I've really come to appreciate. Um, and, and again, we, we run the risk of, of going into a whole new topic. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to rein us in a little bit and we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. But uh, you know, one, one question that I really want to ask is you're someone who knows a lot about this. You have a lot of experience, um, with it. So, um, what would you recommend for a book or, or, or a resource that has had, you know, a profound influence on you either personally or professionally when it comes to the work that you're doing? I think personally and professionally, uh, Zaretta Hammond's book, cultural responsiveness in the brain and thinking about brain plasticity and how culture, she talks about how like culture really, um, forms a child's brain composition and a child's brain is always changing. And we have to be able to work with that child and accommodate them, you know, to um, really be able to learn. So I would totally recommend Zaretta Hammond's book. It's awesome. Um, I would also recommend a book from a colleague of mine, Larry Ferlazzo, the ELL Teacher's Toolkit. Um, I, I, I'm part of the ELL, I'm sure you've heard of this, Steve, the ELL Chat Book Club. Uh, there's, there's a lot of us we're, we're, we all know each other. We're very, we're on Twitter a lot. Um, but that book, it's just so simple and easy to use. It's just strategy after strategy. So if you're like an ELL coordinator in a district and you really want to work with your gen ed team in order to get them to be more responsive to their English learners, this is, this book is so simple to use. It's just, here you go. Here's a bunch of strategies that you can apply tomorrow. Um, so that's why I'm a big fan of that book. Also, um, you know, all of the books that are related to PSYOP, there's a few of them um, by Achivadia, Short, and Vagit. You know, just to get started with using, you know, sheltered instruction observation protocol, I would really recommend just digging into those books and really understanding you know, the, the, um, the concept she, they're talking about. Great. Thanks for those recommendations. And I have, um, the LL teachers toolbox on my desk. I confess that I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten too deep into it yet because I'm reading so many other books that people recommend. Um, and Jana Chavedia is actually, a, um, a member of our advisory board. So we work with her quite a bit. I, I obviously, uh, for that reason and many others highly recommend, um, her work as well. 
So thank you for those recommendations. And how about you? I mean, you do a lot of work as well. Like you said, um, you, you have a very strong uh, PLN on Twitter. Um, again, that's another conversation for another time, but um, but you you are very active on there. So how can people find uh, more about um, about the work that you're doing? Um, one of the places that where my work kind of frequents is ELL Confianza. Um, so the founder of that organization is Sarah Otto. And it's an organization where they go into schools and they really work with teachers and coach them on how to work with English learners and be more culturally responsive. And my um, blogs appear on their site regularly. So I'm a contributor there. And I'm currently working on a couple different projects for that site right now. So, I mean, I would say every couple of weeks, you may see a new blog that I've written on there. So, um, you you want to see my work? I would go to ELL Confianza's site and and look at the uh, tab that says research, and you can find some of the work that I'm doing. Yep, and and I would say also definitely um, uh, you should follow uh, Sarah on Twitter, and I'll make sure that we put um, links to all of the resources that you've just mentioned uh, on the written version, so that people can access those. But Sarah, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to seeing the work that you're doing continue, uh, and, uh, and hopefully we can collaborate again in the future. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.